Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, howdy, Glenn. Um, I got a little bit of space since our, our last episode, but, uh, you know, I actually got some good feedback. Some, uh, I was talking with, uh, Michael, our, our friend of the show down in Australia that helps out with the webpage last week. And, uh, he's saying he enjoyed the kind of laid back, you know, happy hour conversations that uh, that we had in our last uh, last episode. Yeah, I, I did too. I thought it was just a relaxing little departure from the usual sort of heady stuff or more intellectual or papers review. It's kind of chatting with other fingerprint examiners and seeing how they were dealing with stuff and some of the stories I thought were, were really interesting how everyone's dealing with it, you know, from work and social and obviously all the the issues dealing with either COVID or <laughs> in the U.S. at least, you know, the riots and other various demonstrations going on around the country. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, definitely, you know, encourage anyone else out there that's having a, any kind of different experience uh, that wants to share, you know, let us know and we'll, we'll relay that on to, uh, to the, you know, the rest of our audience as well. It's, um, you know, I think a good thing to to have that kind of sharing, so you can kind of see where everybody else is at, look for good ideas, or commiserate on everyone kind of being in the same spot. Uh, first order of business, I want to uh, give a big thanks to some recent Patreon contributors that have signed on with us. Uh, so big thanks to Janine and to Stephen for uh, for joining us uh, as uh, uh, patrons, and you can also go to patreon.com slash double loop podcast and uh, chip us um, chip us <laughs> chip in to help us out with uh, you know, a couple bucks every month and uh, that really helps us with hosting and uh, new equipment and our our long-term goal of you know having someone do the editing for us yeah thanks guys we really appreciate that all right so the next uh, thing the new gimmick for uh, this year to start off the show a fingerprint related anagram so this week, hopefully slightly more difficult than last time. Uh, the clue is snug emu fire plug. Snug, like a, you know, snug as a bug in a rug. Uh, emu, the big bird, and fire plug. Uh, so we'll we'll unscramble those letters at the end of the show. Hopefully, Glenn can can stay focused on. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the show very difficult it's uh, very distracting or uh or quickly solve the puzzle to uh, to get that out of the way so uh glenn we got in a kind of a cool email from uh some old friends of ours uh, we were we kind of did a, a podcast exchange a couple years ago with the gals f- from uh wine and crime podcast right yeah, uh, yeah that was great loved it it was a, it was a really just a fun time uh, you know, being on their show, can you walk us through what the, what they sent us here? Yeah, they sent us something over. Said, "Hey, they received this from their fans, and they thought of us, and which I thought was kind of cool." And so it was basically a poster page presentation, like a one one page poster presentation uh, that was titled "Softening Up the Hard Science of Anatomy." Using fabric softener to rehydrate desiccated cadaver tissue. And it's by Danielle Waters and Nicole Hackenbrack. Both have Masters of Science degrees. So from Danielle Waters and Nicole Hackenbrack. And it showed that they were taking desiccated and dried cadaver tissue. So they were soaking them in a, a solution, a, a solvent solution, uh, that's used to rehydrate tissue 
and they had added fabric softener to this and they had used um, a, a name brand fabric softener. Uh, the idea is that the chemicals in the fabric softener would help soften up the tissue. And they found, actually, that it did help with, uh, with this. And they were kind of inspired from listening to, you know, when we were guests on the Wine and Crime show, mentioning, you know, our past experience using fabric softener on, on dead hands that were... I can't remember if it was you or me that had brought that no, that, that, uh, was that you. up. That was definitely that wasn't me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, that makes sense. Uh, if, if we you know, in Arizona, we'd get that the <laughs> the more the mummified tissue more often than in uh, the land of ten thousand lakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but using that to you know soften up the skin a little bit so that uh, we could actually then do an injection of saline and plump the finger back up and get a uh, a good you know, recording of the friction ridge detail off of that dead skin. So you know, I just thought it sounds like they were listening to this, to this old episode, heard it as an idea, thought, hey, we might be able to to take that and apply it to what we do. And I, I kind of like stories like that where, you know, one field kind of inspires an idea that gets a new application. Reminds me of a few years ago, uh, my sister and I having a conversation about different recipes for sweat, you know, from what I was doing in making test prints for ninhydrin and other uh, analogs for fingerprints. And then the work that she was doing at, uh, uh, she, she works for Victoria's Secret, testing different fabrics uh, so that they would, you know, not, the, the, the colors wouldn't bleed or leach if different, you know, if, if you know, as the clothes got sweaty or, or used or they'd stretch or start to fall apart or anything like that. So, yeah. Just completely different applications, but kind of the same concept, you know, cross-pollinating between these fit fields. Yeah, it, it was very cool that they would think to send that to us and share that. So, yeah, thank you guys. And, and it's kind of cool that it, you know, had some, uh, some, some effect. Yeah. Oh, I solved your damn amigran. It's driving, it was driving me crazy. <laughs> all right, all right. Now we'll I can save it for the end of the show. Now I can concentrate. All right, so before we get into the main topic of the show, any upcoming training or conference, web conferences you want to mention? Yeah, throughout all of this COVID period, I had converted and created some new webinar material. So taking some things I had had or had been wanting to do or was going to pre- present at conferences and workshops and converted them to four-hour workshops for, you know, for IAI credit for recertification or certification. So they're you know, little four-hour webinars. And I'm teaching them through Alice White's company, which is Evolve Forensics. So if you go to uh, www.evolveforensics.com, you can find her webinars or mine there. And I'll just quickly share with you, Eric. Uh, I'm teaching a few here, uh, one on the discriminability of fingerprint characteristics, which is kind of fun to show fingerprint examiners characteristics and have them guess or estimate what they think the specificity is and then kind of see if it matches up with some results and data from various studies or from a statistical model that I run things through. Yeah. So that's kind of cool because one of the things you learn in there is sometimes you you are right on and then other times you are off because of really weird reasons that you it turns out it's a very complex process to try to estimate specificity. That's why these tools are helpful. Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, other ones I teach, which this has always been interesting to me, is how to prepare for a Daubert hearing. What things should you study and how, and 
how do you prepare for this and you know practical advice in preparing for some kind of miscibility hearing. But the one I'm really enjoying, the one I'm, I'm, I'm really loving is how to implement the OSAC conclusion scale. <laughs> yeah, that's where I thought you'd enjoy this, Eric. It's, it's great. I've got people from all over the country and you know uh, soon other countries that are registered for this, and they really seem to enjoy and very quickly pick up how to use the OSAC conclusion scale. So I, I've give, I give out several exercises. I, I give these exercises out in advance and say, go ahead, do what you normally do, and then I kind of teach them how to convert them to OSAC conclusions, and then we kind of run through what that looks like. We work through conflict resolution. We work through how you might, you know, um, adopt an SOP or bring this in? Uh, how would you deal with uh, some interesting reporting circumstances? When might you use this OSAC conclusion versus this one? It's generating lots of good examples. And maybe, Eric, when we have a, a post-follow-up OSAC conclusion one, we could we can discuss a few of those examples. But it's, it's generating some great discussion. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Oh, that's great. That's great. It, great to see you know things moving forward, at least in that regard for the training. And and you know, I'm really not surprised. Uh, I'm really not uh, going through that that migration you know, myself a number of years ago from well from two conclusions up to three and then to four. It did feel kind of natural and using that terminology. So it's similar now, at least in concept, to what's support for same source. You know, there's a lot of people asking concerns of, well, when do I use it? And I don't know, it, it, it felt like when you saw the print where that was appropriate, you kind of knew, yeah, right? Right. That's exactly right. It might be hard to explain kind of in words, but with examples, it becomes a lot easier. And then putting it into practice, it starts to feel right of, of, um, when it's more than nothing, but uh, less than an ID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, how, how about that for the new? The, we'll propose that for the new definition. It's more than nothing, but it's not an ID. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, you know, that that could be a bumper sticker slogan. There you go. Now, I, I'm also kind of mentally keeping track, and in in some way, going to help agencies prepare and with their SOPs and I've got some test samples to give them and I'm going to try to hold their hand and walk them through how to institute or implement this. So as I get more agency examples, it'll be nice for me to kind of mentally track. So who has switched and who is using this? Because there are some agencies in the process right now of actually using the OSAC scales. Again, I don't know any right now, but there are probably close to a dozen agencies that I can now think of that are in the process of adopting them. That's fantastic. Yep. And, and, and again, that's that's in addition to quite a few, uh, even more, that are already beyond a quote-unquote traditional uh, three-conclusion scale. Good point. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so we're ready for the main topic of the show? Oh, indeed. Oh, man, this is going to be fun. I'm, I'm, I'm excited that, about just this topic, but also the the show that, the, that we're kind of basing this on is called The Most Dangerous Animal of All. And it's about the Zodiac case, but also kind of about this guy uh, named Gary Stewart. And we'll, we'll kind of get into that whole story. But And where can they find this, this show? Uh, this show is on FX. If you have cable, you should be able to get, still access it through FX's online site. And Hulu as well. 
the Zodiac story is is you know one of the great mysteries of the 20th century, so that's kind of exciting. But even just watching this, it's a four part documentary series, and. I don't know. I went on kind of this journey with the show kind of led me this, this big up and down kind of thing that was, it almost looked like a little magic trick that, you know, that it pulled on me and and I very much enjoyed that. That, So that's a great way to describe it. And I had the same experience where it was, I was just doing, I was actually painting and just kind of doing my own thing for several hours. So it was just kind of next to me, a few feet away. And I one eye on what I was doing, one eye on the show just kind of going along, going along. That's interesting, interesting. And then, bam, like, whoa, okay, that took a turn. And and I love that, too. I, I, I that You describe it as a magic trick. That's a perfect way to describe it. And we, we'll, we will try to give listeners some spoiler alerts when we get to a certain point in the episode, if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah. So uh, if, yeah, if you haven't seen it, definitely recommend it. And we'll give those those warnings of, of when is kind of the, if you really don't want to know, here's where you shut things off and go watch it on your own yeah for sure all right so we'll get started in with the the first episode so you know again it's called the most dangerous animal of all and this is a quote from one of the zodiac letters that he had written to the police we'll kind of go through the zodiac story here in a little bit and you know i kind of knew that again we've talked we talked a couple months ago about watching the david fincher film zodiac and you know through other true crime stuff, you know, I kind of know little bits about Zodiac from here and there. Uh, so I knew it was very much Zodiac focused, but it doesn't start out that way, right? It starts off talking about this guy named Gary Stewart, uh, who grew up in Louisiana and he was adopted when he was three months old, never knew who his, his birth parents were, but his birth mother contacts him when I think he's in his like forties or so. And wants to meet him, you know, introduce herself, kind of see that he's doing okay. And he ends up, uh, Gary, having lots and lots of questions about his father. So again, right away in this documentary, it's kind of like, okay, this wasn't exactly the story I thought we were getting. But it it then jumps way back to the early 1960s uh, with uh, his mother, Judy Chandler. And his father, a man named Earl Van Best Jr., uh, she she was 14 years old and he was 27. Nothing wrong with that. To- <laughs> totally normal. Totally, totally fine. Uh, early 60s, right? Well, it, it is Louisiana, so. Right. Well, no, no, no. This is this is in San Francisco. Oh, that's true. Sorry, sorry, Louisiana. Just messing with you. <laughs> You're gonna get yourself into trouble here. So, uh, Earl. Uh, basically seduces this uh, little girl to run away from home, you know, abusive home life and everything, all the cliches, but convinces her to run away and see the world in January of 1962. Uh, they go to Reno and get married. Uh, what the hell, Reno? Um, but uh, <laughs> Nevada jo- Insert Nevada joke here. <laughs> there you go. But uh, uh, by Valentine's Day, Judy's mother gets the marriage annulled Earl arrested and Judy sent to juvenile hall, but he gets out on bail, convinces her to run away again and off they go again. And this time, uh, she gets pregnant and he gets arrested again. Uh, she goes to juvie again, but now it becomes this huge story in the papers that they call the ice cream romance, uh, written up in a San Francisco paper by Paul Avery. 
Again, he gets out on bail. They run off again. This time they go all the way to New Orleans where they uh, they have the baby. And not a huge surprise, this is not the beginnings of a <laughs> long-term happy marriage. What? He, uh, you know, he, he doesn't like that there's now a baby around, makes her get a job waitressing, uh, and eventually, you know, takes the baby while she's at work, uh, abandons it in a stairwell of an apartment building all the way up in Baton Rouge. So Judy fi- finally leaves him. He goes to jail, and she goes to a correctional school for girls. Oh, I believe in the 60s that's called Girls Town. <laughs> yes, it's the, the school for wayward girls. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> my initial impressions was, well, okay, again, we haven't really gotten into anything on the Zodiac yet, but that's a relatively interesting story, all kind of by itself. Yeah. And by the end of the show, I start to kind of wonder about this whole process, right? So the show kind of shows Gary doing all this investigation and slowly looking up newspaper articles and finding this whole rest of the story that his mom didn't really tell him about when she first kind of showed up and was like, hey, I want to you know meet my son. But, you know, he calls Earl's family the, the and starts learning more about them and, and his life and and trying to learn as much as he can about this other parent that he still hasn't met yet. So, as, at least in the story of the, the documentary, the story that Gary now tells of his investigation, which I'm not entirely sure I believe, but it's, again, how he sets this up. One day he's watching the TV and sees a uh, you know a true crime or investigation kind of show come up, Dateline, something like that, with a story about the Zodiac. And he sees the sketch artist drawing of the Zodiac killer from uh, the 60s in San Francisco and thinks, this looks exactly like my father and starts this now investigation of is my dad not just this guy who knocked up a 14-year-old kid, but is he also the Zodiac Killer? Right. And as you point out, was living in San Francisco around that time. Right. Well, and there's even more. So after this you know, annulment or, and everything breaks up with, with Judy, uh, his mom, her second husband uh, is a man named Rotea Guilford, who was... Uh, the first African-American detective in the San Francisco Police Department, and at one point worked on the Zodiac case. Pretty amazing coincidence. Exactly. Uh, so all of this investigation, you know, he starts writing these, these, this manuscript, basically, uh, describing this whole investigation, not just as to the Zodiac part, but also this family tree. And the whole ice cream romance story and all of it. And he goes to a publisher looking for any kind of interest in publishing this whole story. And he gets connected with a lady named Susan Mustafa, uh, who's a true crime author. And then together, they start uh, expanding out the story, uh, making it more, you know, making it pop a little more. And, uh, And then eventually publish this book, The Most Dangerous Animal of All detailing out all the evidence that they collect showing that Earl Van Best Jr., Gary's father, is the uh, Zodiac Killer. Right. So there's, in this investigation, a couple little things before, then we'll kind of back up and do the whole Zodiac part of the story. But 
Earl starts in the in sixty seven, starts doing drugs, getting into the hippie movement, and evidently you know, was briefly in a band with Bobby Boussolet, a member of the Manson family. <laughs> And also, it's said in the in this book that he uh, was somehow involved with Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. Again, I, I don't know how much to believe here of how much San Francisco stuff in the 60s can this one guy get linked to, you know? Right, right. Uh, I think it was in the movie Bullet, too, if I recall. <laughs> Uh, yep. No, I can. I can see that. Yeah. 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 Uh, in, in Alcatraz. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's right. As well. And, yep, yep, yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> All right. So let's let's tell let's tell the kind of the the highlights of the the Zodiac uh, serial killer story. Yes. Okay. 1968, uh, Vallejo, California. And I know this is bad for radio, but just a, a quick picture in your head, kind of you know thing for uh, Northern California. Uh, San Francisco Bay, right? So you have San Francisco is on a peninsula that comes up from the south. There's another peninsula that comes down from the north. And then inside that is the bay that stretches you know, north to south. Uh, Vallejo is way up at the top northeast end of the bay. And uh, a little bit off east out of town on Lake Herman Road, uh, Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday pull into a lover's lane and... At uh, about 11 p.m., someone orders them both out of the car with a 38 and shoots them both in the head. And evidently, Betty Lou is shot in the back from about 25 feet away. And this is December 20th, right? So, do you think kids today even know what Lover's Lane is? I mean, is that reference like even seriously? I mean, I, it's so quaint when I hear it, and you know, necking you know, and question. parking, and uh, does that does that even exist anymore? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I really don't think so because I mean, the, it seems like kids don't even really care about getting a driver's license anymore, right? <laughs> like, great point. Great point. There's there's it's like why bother? I'll just you know talk to them on my phone and you know connect over you know the Xbox network or whatever and and play games. Like, why do I need to go out and and see them? Yeah, we can just send nude pictures over the phone. Why do Why do I need to go park somewhere to to do this? So. But at this at this point, right in December, it's this unsolved murder, and that's kind of it. It, it. Nothing else really happens for about another six months in the next year in 69, also in Vallejo, but or outside of Vallejo, but a little bit closer in, a couple miles you know, west now of the original location. On July 4th, Darlene Farron and Michael Maggio are at Blue Rock Springs Park. Uh, where a car comes in, parks next to them, then leaves, then comes back, parks next to them again, and then someone uh, pulls out a 9mm Luger, shines a light into their eyes, shoots into the car, comes back after hearing them moaning you know, of as Michael was still alive, shoots each two more times, and then the Vallejo police get a phone call saying that he just shot these two kids, Oh, and by the way, I also shot those two last December. And again, Michael uh, of these two uh, survives this attack. But notice we've moved on. The first one was a thirty-eight. This one's a 9 millimeter. Yeah. So about a month later, August 1st to the 3rd, there's letters received by the Vallejo Times-Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner. 
Now, each letter is ident- basically identical like with the main body of what it says, but each in- all include a piece of a cipher. Now, uh, so a cipher being a series of letters and numbers where you can then replace you know, this symbol with a real letter, and then after you replace everything in like a code, then you can read out what the, the secret message is. Did you, did you ever get into cryptograms and yes, absolutely the ciphers and, and solving those kinds of things. I know some, some, I think they used to do it in like newspapers and stuff, put like in a cipher to decode every week. Yeah. Yeah. I, there was usually a daily cryptogram of some sort where you, you break the code and you know, I, I, I've always enjoyed those kinds of puzzles and games. And that's why th- this case is so fascinating because it's this <laughs> weird, evil genius terrible yeah. person that if you crack the code you might be able to catch the killer i mean i can see how this is just so fascinating to just the public because they can become like a real life detective to try to catch a killer so i mean it, it really is an incredible case as opposed to your run-of-the-mill sort of crime all right so the newspapers published this because in the initial letter he describes elements of these two crime scenes that maybe only, only the killer should know. He describes the brand name of the ammo, the number of shots fired, the position of the bodies, what what one of the victims was wearing, where the bullet wounds were, and threatens that if the newspapers don't publish this, he's going to he's going to kill again. And it's signed with a circle, the plus line signed through it. You know, then later, you know, really being the signature of the zodiac. And uh, I really like the story of how this this uh, this first cipher was solved, right? So it goes out to like the feds and San Francisco police, and none of them can crack it. And then after about a week, uh, all of a sudden they get the police get a phone call from this this uh, this married couple, uh, their pair of teachers that decided just to spend the weekend solving this <laughs> this cipher, and they do it. Uh, and part of it was this first couple assumptions. First is, I bet you that this guy's kind of self-centered, so he's going to start his cipher with the word I. And he's also going to very quickly talk about, you know, killing or kill. So we're going to look for a double letter to be the two L's in killing. And sure enough, uh, the first sentence is, I like killing people. Because it is so much fun, it is more fun than killing wild game in the forest, because man is the most dangerous animal of all. And now we have the name of the show. It's amazing. I mean, it, I, I love the ingenuity, the logic behind it. It's, it's great. Yeah, and that, I think that's the, kind of the way you, you do this, right? You kind, of, you kind of try a couple things, and then it all kind of fits from there. In the letters, he says that solving this cipher is going to reveal who, who he is, reveal his identity. Well, he it's not. He uh, he doesn't say his name once the, the this uh, this cipher is solved. And and it's important to note that the cipher that solves this letter doesn't solve the other letters. Correct. So there, this is the there's really two ciphers that come in, and this is the being the first one, and it's solved after about a week. The second one is still unsolved to this day. And if you're really interested, there are a number of websites with with 
cipher decoding tools to assist you as you can try out different letters. Like, what if, if I make the, this this triangle? Okay, that triangles are going to be L's, and then and you know you can you can try that all out with with different online tools to rearrange and rotate everything. And anyway, it, it's all there if if you want to take on that challenge and become obsessed like thousands of other people have over the past fifty years. It, it just seems through brute force. Just by, you know what I mean? Just by inserting random letters and words in, it seems like it should have been cracked by now. I mean, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, Yeah, I I mean, it almost makes me wonder if there really isn't, if if it's not solvable. Again, if it is that complicated, I mean, that's impressive, I suppose. Well, I I I think it could go either way, right? Yeah, it might mean that it's really complicated, or it might mean that he's just bad at making ciphers, <laughs> right? Right. So, and so there's little tricks you do in it, right? You just purposely misspell words, and then it becomes harder to solve because they're not correctly spelled. Yeah, even the one that was solved, you have things like forest has an extra R. Yeah, dangerous. An animal are misspelled. Like many of the words, um, yeah, good point. And they are misspelled. And then there's more than 26 characters that he uses. So, so say an L might uh, have two different symbols that you might occasionally use for L uh, or E. And again, once if you know the code, you can then yeah read it all. But it maybe have been made with so many misspellings and so many extra symbols that it really just becomes uncrackable uh, unless you you have that um, decoder ring. Yeah, I, I suppose that's a good point. Plus, it's not like there's spaces between the words, so uh, exactly, which is another difficulty of it. You don't exactly know how long the word is or where and so on. So on August 4th, there is a second letter. Uh, this is the one where he finally officially calls himself the Zodiac and gives more information like the position of the car windows, where the boy was sitting, how the boy ended up in the back seat, how he drove away slowly, describes the witness that he saw, how he used a flashlight attached to the gun as a method for aiming in the dark. You know, just even more details to lend credence to the fact the guy writing this letter was the person who committed uh, both of these uh, attacks. So another couple months go by. In September 27th, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard are at a picnic at Lake Berryessa. So our third location, Lake Berryessa. This is way, way north of the San Francisco Bay. So again, you get come in from San Francisco. The bay goes north and south. Vallejo's to the north. Go even further north, you get to Napa, even further north, and you finally are uh, up at Lake Berryessa. And this couple are having a picnic, and a man approaches wearing a black executioner's hood with clip-on sunglasses over the mask and kind of a bib covering the chest area that has a this zodiac symbol, a plus sign with a circle around it. And uh, approaches with a forty-five, has them tie themselves up, then stabs them both repeatedly, writes the dates of the other two attacks on the car with a marker, and runs off. Uh, the lady, Cecilia, dies, but Brian Hartnell survives this attack. And then finally, on October 11th, now in 
San Francisco proper, Presidio Heights. So that's kind of way up towards the, the north tip of San Francisco. Uh, there's a cab driver named Paul Stein who picks up a man, drives to Presidio Heights, uh, and but he gets shot with a 9mm, but a different 9mm than from the first attack. Uh, radio dispatch says that it was a black guy, that's the suspect, uh, which lets the killer get away. But part of Paul Stein's shirt is taken with the blood on it and is sent in with another letter to the newspaper as proof again that the guy writing this let these letters is the the killer. So kind of before we go back to the 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 rest of the story uh, of this documentary, I want to kind of you know get your opinion on a couple things here, Glenn. You know, we got really four separate events, right? Four different guns. One of one of the attacks is very much more knife based than than gun based. Now, there's other attacks that are that have in the past been attributed to the Zodiac uh, that have really, you know, just really some serious doubts of whether or not they're linked. Other letters uh, written into newspapers saying, you know, there's like 37 different victims. Someone calls into a radio show pretending to be the Zodiac, but that turns out to be fake. Of these, this initial seven people, these four uh, in four different attacks, are they all from the same person? You know that is a fantastic question. Uh, obviously, I don't know the answer. <laughs> it's not like I've been sitting on this for you know, come on, Glenn, for sixty years. Uh, no, I, I agree. I mean, it, you know, it, it breaks every rule that we know about you know serial killers and and their mo, and yet there are elements about this, and they're undeniable. Uh, aspects of the trophy taking the you know um, the indicating certain things you know to the news and you know uh, just the just the information that this person seems to have I can see why that they think these are all the same person but of course as you're pointing out there is there's some really crazy thing uh, the knife one's a great example that that just it it's, it's a great example of how this doesn't fit this pattern yet elements of it do seem to to, to fit with it. The, the two that seem most similar are the, the Lover's Lane attacks, right? They're right. like four miles apart and just kind of same time of night. The Both the, you know, those those seem a little bit similar. But even then, it's, they're different guns. But then the, the you know, letters hit the newspaper and become this sensation. And the, then a couple months later is the attack up at Lake Berryessa, you know, I can almost imagine someone seeing all the hype from right. these uh, Zodiac letters in the paper being like, oh, I'm going to make myself a mask and get the symbol on this, you know, this thing. Man, this would be metal. Well, you wouldn't have that in, in 69, but still, you know, just kind of like that that kind of copycat thing to get that level of fame that, that they're seeing in the paper. and And then... You know, similar kind of thing for the the cab, you know, at the end. But I don't know. It's one of these things where, you know, it's even hard to nail down. These are the ones that are kind of mostly accepted as all from the same uh, serial killer. But you know, even then, it's it's really hard to nail down. Yeah. 
really solid forensics showing that they're they're all from the same person. Yeah, and and as you point out, there's some really different elements. I mean, the cab one in the city around people, not isolated. Uh, the yeah. one, you know, yes, he writes the dates of the other attacks, but those were known, and you know, writing them with a marker on the car. But you know he uses a you know a knife to stab them, which just kind of goes against the you know this mo. Man, it it is it is strange, and obviously we'll we'll never know. No, no, you're right. We we won't. But it, it is. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's kind of the part of the element of why it, it's been yeah. you know impossible to solve for fifty years, and and but also why it's going to remain such a a fascinating mystery for so many people. Yeah. All right, so let's get back to the the main story here, the the most dangerous animal of all documentary. So the book that uh, Gary Stewart and Susan Mustafa end up writing lays out all this evidence that they gather that Earl Van Best Jr. is the Zodiac Killer. So let's start going through uh, everything they lay out. It's it is a you know it's not just hey this you know sketch artist. Uh, drawing looks like you know an old photo of my dad that starts off with the cipher uh, where earl's father was a code breaker in the military and evidently taught his son how to make ciphers and they would you know, have little games with it i mean i mean right right there i mean i remember when they revealed that in the show it's like well okay stop good i it, yeah i'm in i you know i mean <laughs> what are what are the chances well True. I mean, it's not like I mean, I, both my grandfathers World War, World War Two, you know, and I don't. Neither of them, in, you know, made ciphers, right? Like, right. It, it, it's it's a fairly niche thing to, to do in the military. It's not fairly. like. Uh, but the big thing is again. Remember the the newspaper letter said my identity is in the cipher. Well, they deciphered the first one, and no name in it, but. The the uh, the cipher ends up being a grid of it's seventeen uh, characters across and twenty characters down, and if you start on the right hand edge, look at that column, you can start picking out one letter from each column, working backwards. You will you can spell out Earl E A R L Van V A N Best. And then junior J U N I O R spelled out with 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 one of those letters in each column. With one of those letters in each column, his name spelled out in the cipher. Now, the you know Gary here, the guy writing this book, puts that calls it a a unique and astronomical you know, odds that that this would just kind of show up here. <laughs> I I. I have observed thousands of ciphers, and I would not expect to find that combination of letters again by random chance in another cipher uh, to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty. There you go. There you go. Uh, now, th- at, at this point, right, so this is one of the first pieces of evidence put up. At this point in the show, I'm I'm a little – okay, so I've, I've kind of gone along for the ride. Interesting story so far. You know his family tree, this kind of horrible experience that his his mother uh, went through at the hands of his father, and then with, with when this kind of comes up, I kind this is what my kind of first turn in the show of of being like, I don't know, show sounds like you're peddling some bullshit on me here. Oh, interesting. Oh. Uh, 
this is this is kind of when I I went into cynic mode. Um, was was uh, was when this uh, you know cipher uh, is brought up because I I, mean, I had the exact opposite where I was like no okay, okay I'm I, I'm on the hook I'm, I'm I'm along for the ride now give me something that I can appreciate like forensic evidence or whatever but I was I was on the hook here so that's interesting okay. we had different takes there okay all right so forensic you say huh how about a fingerprint no well fingerprints would be great. <laughs> Well, on that last murder on the taxi cab, there is a bloody fingerprint that's uh, that's photographed that um, has a a scar running across the uh, the latent, and uh, Gary gets a copy of his dad's fingerprint card, who has a scar running across his number two right index finger, and if you overlay that index finger you know impression with the the bloody latent impression. The scar appears to be going in the same direction and in the same location as the uh, you know as the bloody print on the car, and they show a picture of it, right? So, right. you know, we both recognize immediately, being experts in, in the fingerprints, that that there's really nothing here, right? That this is just kind of a blob of of blood, and the picture isn't clear enough to see any ridge detail, right? But from what the overlay that they show, it does seem to kind of at least match up that. You know the scar is in relatively the same direction and same location on the finger. Yeah, I think it's running from like two o'clock uh, to seven o'clock through the finger, like across with just a like a white line running across the finger. So you know, here, okay, I mean I'm not convinced by this because you know again it, there's no comparable ridge detail. But right, uh, all right, what you got next? Well, next up would be handwriting. Yes. So. Uh, they contact a, a uh, document examiner named Michael Wachschel. And from Gary's mom, what she has a uh, marriage certificate when, when they got married, uh, presumably in Reno, from whatever chapel was there, uh, that evidently is Earl Van Best Jr.'s handwriting. And uh, that gets compared to the writing on the notes sent in to the San Francisco Papers. And so he looks out for specific things. There's like an EST in you know, Earl Van Best, Best EST, that they can match up with some ESTs in that same order in the, uh, in the letter that are very close in spacing and, and shape. And then there's a capital J that in the documentary they show overlaying perfectly the exact same shape you know, kind of angle of the curve and the top hat part. I'm not sure if those are the proper names for the parts of the capital J, but you know, you kind of go with me here. I got you. Um, and as basically saying, and again, so I'm not an expert in, in, uh, handwriting, a document examination. So I'm at least, you know, kind of just showing me seeing what he's showing. I'm like, okay, I, you know, I can see similarities between these letters, the thing that, that he's highlighting. But then there's this phrase. Yeah, I'm, that, I'm so glad you, 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 you got this. This is great. It, this is when I stopped what I was doing and was like, oh, let me write this down. <laughs> Go ahead. So this, this is the expert. Uh, Michael Wachschel says, there's a strong probability that Earl Van Best Jr. wrote the Zodiac letters. And strong probability is synonymous with virtually certain. Virtually certain. Synonymous with that. That blew me away a little bit because 
I mean, we we talked about the OSAC conclusions, and you know, the right. question document scale is a great example of the OSAC conclusions before the the you know in in another discipline where they have this nine point ASTM scale where you've got inconclusive in the center, and as you find characteristics in support of the same writer, they go indications. Indications: this person is the author or the writer. Then they have uh, the person is probably the author. Uh, then it's highly probable, the author, and then finally an identification, which they kind of reserve identification in circumstances where – in my experience with question document examiners, I used to go to a lot of their conferences and I knew a lot of them. It was one of those that yeah. they often didn't use, especially for like a single signature or for limited writing. It was almost always reserved and the same thing for their elimination, which they rarely used either. You had to almost be comparing like a, a – you know, several pages, like a letter. Like two books, right, or two diaries. Hundreds of words, and then your source samples would involve, you know, diaries or books or hundreds of other letters. They really need a lot of information because handwriting of probably all the forensic characteristics has the most amount of acceptable and expected variability even within the source writer. You need to see an amazing amount of samples. And whenever they collect samples from someone in jail, it's never just here, write you know, out this letter, right. they make them do it like 20 or 30 times because it's after the first couple of letters that they stop being so careful and stop trying to disguise their handwriting that by the, the 10th or the 20th letter, now they're just kind of writing as quickly as possible like they really might in the real world. And it, th- those later samples tend to be better and more representative of the range of characteristics you could find in a single source. It, it wasn't an identification, so that didn't surprise me. What surprised me is that <laughs> the phrase you said is that strong probability, so that I'm assuming he means highly probable, that it's, it's the category right before identification, is synonymous with virtually certain. So does that mean identification was absolutely certain and this was virtually certain? I, I, was, I was a little surprised how he characterized these terms. In any case... I still see what he was showing, right? The, the, the samples of the letters. Yeah, it was very and convincing visually. Exactly. So I, I know that that terminology or that using that phrase kind of as synonymous with virtually certain kind of brought me back down from seeing the similarities to more, again, more back to that cynical side of questioning what, what he was really saying. I see. So uh, I see kind of your mental reasoning here it, it, it back and forth yeah back and forth here yeah okay yeah i see that okay well okay so zodiac sent in letters right letters have stamps for some reason it took until the 21st century before we could figure out how to have stamps be stickers so back in the 60s you had to lick them <laughs> to put them on the envelope right yeah lick the stamp you gotta have dna so that's exactly what the next little bit of forensic evidence that uh, that Gary moves forward with. So he goes and gives a sample of his own DNA to the San Francisco police. Because in the early 2000s, uh, they get these envelopes out of storage for DNA testing. And that becomes a story that you know, gets shown on the ABC show Primetime. Mm-hmm. And they, sh- they, they can't show the evidence in the, sh- in the show, right? So they blur out the the markers the markers right so there's five alleles that come up with results you know each one having 
two numbers representing the the, the, the two values for, for that allele, uh, but they're all blurred. Well, they're kind of, they're blurred, but they're not like really blurred, right? Right. So, so uh, Gary kind of looks at them very closely, pauses it, writes down what numbers he thinks are underneath the blur, has Susan come over, do the same thing, compare their results. They got the same numbers written down. For one of them, it's like, okay, maybe this is an 18 or a 13. We can't really tell between the three and the eight. But overall, they get a list of these are the numbers for these five markers. He gets his DNA worked up. He gets his mom's DNA worked up so that he can figure out what, you know, which marker, you know, kind of which belong to of his DNA, which belongs to his mom, which belongs to his dad. Gets his dad's to can be compared against this list at these alleles. And all five match for uh, his dad. And the expert here is Gary Shiro from Scales Biological Labs. And uh, they say that, you know, if these five markers are correctly interpreted from the blurred image, then it matches Gary's father to 97 to 99.8% probability that it's the same person. Yeah, and it, at this point, I was looking up the the, the specific alleles that were were <laughs> present, double check some of this math, and see you know how this might actually work out, and what the you know were these common alleles in the population, you know, and so on. And but as I'm looking it up in the documentary or in the show, they they say that Gary uh, Shiro says, and particularly one of these markers is actually on the more rare side and was a little more discriminating. And the, the expression, phenotypic expression here, was actually more rare, which allowed them to have sort of a, a stronger statistic in, in their calculation. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, it, it, it doesn't really surprise me with, with even with just five alleles, you can get up to that high nineties kind of number, especially if if uh, if one of them is, you know, in the population down in, uh, you know, close to one yep. percent um, or even less than five percent of the time, you know, it's that power of multiplication that makes those numbers get uh, really small really quick. The the thing that then again I'm back and forth because I'm like that's really interesting I I. I'm not that it matches to that level. I'm a little questioning on the um, de-blurring it or kind of guessing at what the blurred images was. But as I'm kind of going back and weighing, you know, how, how do I feel about this? You know, Gary comes out and then and says that what this means is 99.8 percent <laughs> certain that my father is the Zodiac killer. Yes, 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 yes. Which is a prosecution fallacy. He's sort of he's taken this statistic and kind of reversed this a bit right right oh and, so, and taken the highest probability in the range right, which is right. interesting because we've talked about the pcasting before and remember pcast thinks that if you give a range jurors were only focused on the low end uh, as opposed right. to the the high end and it seems like this layperson just focused on the high end so again i'm back and forth here and um but you know, Gary follows up with San Francisco police, talks to a detective there, asking kind of for more information. Again, the detective can't really tell him what the evidence is. That's just not something that they can release, but tells Gary that his father isn't going to be excluded. And, you know, that kind of language in the DNA realm has has meaning behind it, right? Right. As it's a similar in, in meaning to when we say support for same source. It's 
and with only five alleles instead of the full, oh, geez, however many they're up to now for a full profile, it may not be enough to say an identification, but may lead to this kind of wording that someone could not be excluded. So there's, so this is kind of more focused on the forensic aspects. There's a number of other little coincidences or weird linkages. Um, one, Paul Avery is a, is a big character in the Zodiac story and, and specifically gets a letter at one point from the Zodiac. Uh, you know, usually it was addressed to the newspaper overall, but at least one of them was addressed specifically to Paul Avery. And if you remember, he was the author of that initial piece back on Earl Van Best Jr. talking about the ice cream romance. So again, number of other little things. I also mentioned the Judy's second husband being a detective involved in the investigation at some point. And, you know, Gary gets it in his head that there's this big cover-up to protect this detective that didn't catch the Zodiac but should have known who it was. But uh, here, I think, would be the point if you, you know, really want to, to see the show and kind of go through the whole journey that, that we went on. Now would be the point to pause it before we get into the final spoilers. This really is a, 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 a turning moment because, and I will tell you, I think this is probably like episode three at this point, Eric. Yeah, the end of three. I'm on. I agree at this point. I, I think that they've done a great job of showing that in all likelihood he probably was the Zodiac Killer. And now I'm thinking, I, I should probably read this book and learn a little bit more about it. And I'm yeah, I'm, I'm in. I'm... I'm I'm relatively accepting of their their proposition that yeah this is this was really probably the guy. There're just too many coincidences and even though there's not one bit of conclusive forensic evidence, the accumulation of it together was good enough for me. So I'll tell you what I was doing at this moment here in just a minute, but let me let, so let me start on here. The 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 show flips here. It actually it's kind of a subtle flip. You don't really catch on right away that they're doing this. But they start to refute every bit of evidence that they've previously given, right? It, so far, it's basically been like the show is the mouthpiece of Gary explaining all his evidence. And kind of subtly, and then as it goes much more clearly, starts refuting every little bit of it. And what I thought was really interesting, I did a little background research on the director and the producer and their approach to this. They didn't really tell them no, that they, they were didn't. going to do this. Uh, so, I mean, they were having these natural interviews with Gary and Susan about the book and, you know, their theories and talking with them. And the entire time, they are talking to other people and, and the producers of the show are, are trying to refute the evidence and beginning to collect evidence that refutes it. But they don't tell these two people right away and they kind of hit them with it and blindside them at the very end of the show uh with with some things so i, I thought that was pretty interesting too why would you oh, you yeah. know why would you participate if you in this if you didn't know this if this is coming or this or that that, that was uh that that opened my eyes to their approach yeah no it it's um I, I don't know how else you would make this documentary, right? It convinced them to be that involved. Yeah. But, uh, but you're absolutely right. All right. So the first thing that they start in on is the cipher, right? Which really what they show is how it uses a crazy level of interpretation. And it's not as clear cut as what, what Gary is describing, right? He describes, you, you know, seeing his father's name spelled out backwards, but spelled out. 
across the 17 columns of this cipher. So, you know, again, Earl Van Best Jr. with Jr. fully spelled out. Well, the E isn't really an E. The E is a circle with the top half filled in, right? So I guess you can, it kind of looks like a lowercase E, sort of, but, you know, you have to interpret it to be an E. The A isn't an A, it's a triangle, a filled in triangle. The T is a plus sign. The U of Jr. is a V. So, you know, there's all of these different interpretations that you where you have to then decide to see that letter to see that shape as a specific letter that's not you know obviously that letter right and they go to an expert about on this kind of thing and they talk to him and this expert says that he can basically come up with about a hundred thousand different names that can fit uh, you can get ali vandell jr or Carlton Olin Jr., or Dylan Joseph Polyak, or Jamal Bob DeLuca. Hey, that's my friend from high school. No, I'm kidding. Jo- Yo, Jamal Bob. <laughs> yeah, Jamal Bob. I went to high school with that dude. <laughs> uh, Tom Faustino Tolley, Derek Colin Easter. All, all these different names can fit doing the exact same thing. So here's the thing. Before they did this this flip, right? Where they flipped the script and, and started showing all this, I'd actually paused the show. <laughs> Uh, I love it. Opened up the, a a website for doing the decipher decryption for the Zodiac case. And because I was like, this is, I was just like, I was going off in my head. I was like, this is some just horseshit. I, like you can make anything up, like looking at the things that he'd, he'd picked out. You, you could, you can make anything fit. So I did. I, if you go through and with again the 17 columns uh, of this cipher and this time i went forward not backwards you can p- spell out d o u b l e l o o p p o d c a s t the devil loop podcast glenn <laughs> we, we are the zodiac killer we are zodiac that, that that is amazing. Well now done. Again, well done, sir. <laughs> I have to do some interpretation to do it. The D is backwards. The U of double isn't actually a U, it's a backward C. But you know, if you cock your head to the side, that's a U. The S of podcast is more of a G, but it's kind of a just an S looking kind of G. You take the same license that exactly the same license that uh, that he did the same kind of backward C once I use as a U for double yeah and the other time I use it as the D of podcast because a backward C you know you kind of connect the left edge that turns it into a D yeah but still seventeen letters fits perfectly interesting and I was like there we go I'm going to talk about this with Glenn on the podcast that's amazing <laughs> well done well done. So anyway, when so then as it went forward and they actually show had an expert go on and talk about this, I was like, oh well, okay, that took a little bit of the sail out of the wind out of my sails. So I thought I was <laughs> coming in all I was coming in all hot, and then and then the show got had gotten there ahead of me. And I, and I'll admit that I, I wasn't as convinced. I still thought, I mean, you know, the his some of his reasoning and license, you know, the A is a you know, is a triangle and the T is a plus sign, U being a V, you know, I could look at all that and go, well, you know, yeah, I, I can see this, you know, in like Latin times, a U would have been a V, you know, True. there, 
it wasn't so far-fetched. I, I, I thought it was still an amazing coincidence that it happened to fit. Earl Van Best Jr. happened to fit exactly the number of letters, one per column. And uh, I, I went, yes, that's, that's an interesting point. But it does still fit out of, you know, potentially billions of names. It does still fit. But I, I love your Double Loop podcast. That adds even more to it. Well, and and to, to be fair, I, I did try my name and your name, and couldn't really get them to fit at all. Yeah, but I was I was happy enough that I could get Double Loop Podcast to fit and fit, fit perfectly in the length. Yeah, and you know, with a little bit of of uh, interpretation, get the letters to fit as well. Sure. So I love this part of the show though because they kind of come to him, and now in the interview they're asking him questions about. The, the kind of the refuting that they're doing now and he's like okay fine i mean i don't believe you that you could have a hundred thousand people that that fit but you know fine and then it, <laughs> then gary says well did any of those people have a scar on their right index finger shoot that one down scene cuts <laughs> and i hear a voice come on the air that says i'm an expert in fingerprints <laughs> <laughs> and it's our friend here mr glenn langberg Dr. Glenn Langberg, I apologize. Yes. All right. So here's where I'll tell my my story and involvement with this. So I was in this documentary, and they had reached out to me, and they didn't tell me much at all. And I, to their full credit, I mean, you know, the producer reached out, and they said, "Look, you know, we'd like you to look at some evidence from the Zodiac case, and you know, take a look at some things. Are you are you interested? Are you able to do that?" Well, of course. Yeah. This this would be amazing. And then they they sent me these images, the same ones they they show in the show, and you know they refer to them as these bloody fingerprints. But I'm looking at them, and they look like they're actually tape lifts. So I'm like, well, hold on. And there's black powder there, you know, in the lift as well. So were there bloody fingerprints? And they put powder on, which I have seen in in cases, especially in the yeah. '60s. I've seen in multiple cases where there were bloody impressions that were black powdered. And then, you know, did they lift them or were there adjacent latents? And the photos don't do any justice at all here. So I'm looking at these and I'm I'm orienting them and there's a series that they want me to look at. One of the particular lips, they say, look at, you know, those fingers there. And then the way that they were showing me that my first reaction was, oh, no, no, these are upside down. You, you would actually want to rotate them this way because the way that the fingers have been positioned, you have to rotate it. And what I found out later is the the producer already knew that and so wanted to see if I was picking up on that, which, you know. So when you say ro- rotate, it's because they're like simultaneous yeah, there fingers? Yeah, th- exactly. There are three impressions that look like they were from an index, a middle finger, and a ring finger. And so if you look at the heights of your fingers and you've got the yeah. – the, yeah. So it was in the exact opposite position of where they were. But if you rotated it 180 to the other way, then you could get them in the right – and then they would be the right way. Except now in this position, the 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 finger that's supposedly the scar that has this – there is a white line running through that one. When you rotate it, it is now where the ring finger would be or it is the left index finger. So it's either now the left index finger or it is the right ring finger. Right. So the only way to make it be the right index finger – 
is if you then reverse it, a lateral image reversal. And now it flips over to the right index finger, but the problem is I think the scar is going in the wrong direction at this point. Um, so right. you basically have to – that's right. You had to flip it to get it into the right index position, and now to get the scar – um, going in the right direction, you have to do this lateral reversal. It's the only way to make it be the right index finger and to have the scar going from the, like the 2 o'clock to 7 o'clock line. Otherwise, it's either the wrong finger, right direction, or it's the right finger, wrong direction. And so then the producers asked if I would be willing to do a lateral reversal. And they didn't use that word, but they asked me if I would compare it the other way and flip it. And I was like, well, why would you do that? This is supposedly a, a bloody impression. Why would, why would you do that? And they're like, I don't know. C- could you do that? And I said, well, one could. I don't know why you would. <laughs> <laughs> there are many things I can do. They don't necessarily right. make sense. And, and I'm looking at the list now to try to figure out well, is this a transparency and you know which direction is it coming from? Do I have it right? So no, I mean looking at it and all of the, the images and the writing on everything and the way this was, it made zero sense, especially as a tape lift from a non-porous surface of the vehicle to let, do a lateral reversal here. It just it made zero sense to do that. But they asked if I would, and I'm okay, but I'm just making it clear you would never do – and if this is supposedly a bloody fingerprint, there is zero reason you would do that. So they uh, asked if I'd be willing to say all that on camera and, and talk about that, and I said, yeah, sure. There's no problem. And they – I happened to be going to Los Angeles where their production company was because I was teaching a class in San Diego. But I was taking the kids with me, and we were going to the Magic Castle in Los Angeles. There so you go. I very – I just happened to be uh, right in town at the time that they were filming this. I was like, hey, I'll, I'll swing by your studio. I, I can't remember where they were, but they're in one of the suburbs of, of Los Angeles. And I swung by their little tiny studio and uh, they had set everything up in a little room, and we we did this interview. Well, you you ended up being on screen for you know, for the entire interview, uh, twenty seconds or so. Yeah, twenty seconds sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, I was there for for two hours, and we did a right. ton of takes. And it seemed like every time I get started in saying something a certain way and said it the way I was pretty happy with it. There would be, you know, some engine would kick on from a truck across the street, or the air conditioning would come on, and suddenly all the background noise was being. <laughs> so I uh, we had to do probably uh, at least six or seven different takes, and and they ended up cutting a bunch of things out. Uh, right. One one of the things was that originally when they when the authors were doing their background work, they had reached out to a fingerprint expert. They reached out to Bob Garrett, who is right. you know a well known fingerprint examiner uh, from the New York New Jersey area, and he was you know ex president of the IAI. He was involved in at the time right with the NAS report. He wrote the very famous memo urging the membership to. Stop saying to the exclusion of all others. He initiated the uh, the McKee inquiry through the IAI and so on, and did a lot of great things when he was president of the IAI. And so Bob had already looked at this before uh, with the authors in the book, 
And the producer showed me some email exchanges from Bob Garrett and the the book author, uh, Susan Mustafa. And apparently Bob had gone through the exact same logic where he's like, why would you do that? Why would you reverse this? It's in the wrong position. It's in the wrong direction. It doesn't quite fit. Well, would you would, – could you lateral – you know, could you do this lateral reversal anyway? Like, well, I can, but I don't know why you would. And they wanted him to do it anyway. He did. They asked if they could do an overlay and they asked him for a conclusion. And basically he said, well, it's inconclusive. There's no ridge detail here. Yes, there's a white line running through this guy's right index finger. Yes, there's a white line in this supposedly bloody impression that kind of looks more like a black powder lift, but supposedly. And it's running here, but again, you're doing all these things to make it fit that you wouldn't normally do. So yeah, inconclusive. There's no ridge detail here. And I said during the during my interview that even if he had a scar on his right index finger, it really isn't that discriminating because as we know from the research, the index fingers are the most common fingers to have scars. And there's already some research showing that having scars on your fingers, especially index fingers, is relatively common. That's where I got mine. This is just a, a really a class characteristic plus – you forced me to compare it in a way that doesn't fit the evidence and no logical reason to compare it this way. Yeah, no, that, that's where I got my you know, kind of most significant scar is on my, well, my left index finger. You, you, you basically close out your section by saying that really the, the big issue is there's no ridge detail here, right? The, the right. images are haven't really survived well, and it's just kind of a blob of not much – and that all you can really tell from this, the only conclusion you can really draw, is that you know the, this impression on the car is from a finger, probably. Yeah. These appear to be fingerprints, I think, is about all I could say. That, uh, the, you could generally say these appear to be fingerprints. So uh, there, there are some other latent prints in the Zodiac case. Um, I believe one from the phone booth where uh, the killer called after the tax cab murder, and I think at least one, if not more than one, on different letters that were mailed in. Yeah. They don't really mention those in the show, but I'm just curious if, like, in the interview, if that if any of that work that came up. No, no, they, they never came up, and I actually thought that maybe those were, like, some of the ones I was going to be looking at, ones that had some ridge detail. I thought I might be able to use, like, a statistical model approach, maybe even case APHIS or some cool tools and technology, and then when I find, it's, find out it's this, I'm like, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> uh, but, again, I didn't really know why they're asking me this. And I didn't really know that their goal was sort of debunking right. this. I mean, they never told me any of this. And I didn't know about any of the other aspects going on. When I got there to the studio, uh, by the way, in their little uh, studio, they had a standing um, Miss Pac-Man machine. Oh. So uh, me and the boys, we were happy just kind of <laughs> hanging out and waiting for them to get set up. Uh, no problem. But they had a, a bunch of storyboards up as well. And uh, you could kind of see all these little things and post-it notes and the episodes being laid out by colored post-it notes. And I just kind of glanced at it, but they, they never talked about it. They never said anything to me. They kept me in the dark. I didn't know about the other th- So when I was watching this documentary, Eric, I was just as, <laughs> just as engaged as you, just as yeah. in the dark. Even though I had participated in it, I had no idea. They did a fantastic job of keeping me in the dark and just wanting you know what they felt was an unbiased and kind of objective neutral opinion on this 
All right. So next uh, bit of evidence is is the handwriting. So it turns out, you know, we were talking about the the, the amount of sample that you would need to compare and, and how that is really necessary in handwriting comparisons. So it turns out the sample from Earl is just this marriage certificate, right? So that's why the EST had to come from his name, Earl Van Best, because there's not a whole lot of writing on this certificate. Right. I guess to his credit, the expert, that initial expert that they went to followed up and got some more samples of other marriage certificates from that church from that same time period. And what he does is he ends up changing his mind and deciding that it actually was the minister that had filled out that form because that handwriting matches, you know, all of the other marriage certificates. And obviously Earl Van Best Jr. wasn't sitting there filling these forms out for uh, the next couple of years. It was really the, the minister that had filled those out and it was the minister's handwriting that then matched these Zodiac letters. So... He kind of has some half-said theory that maybe that kind of sticking with his initial conclusion that this matched Zodiac to then putting the minister as Zodiac, but the show kind of moves away from that. So (laughs) very quickly, (laughs) right? Uh, We might accuse the Catholic Church of many things, (laughs) but being the Zodiac killer apparently is not one of them. I I don't think it was a Catholic. <laughs> priest that they had gone to in the middle of the night in Reno, but I, I you know, actually, I, I wasn't sure. I didn't catch quite catch that part, but maybe. <laughs> but the producers of the show go to another uh, document examiner named Patricia Fisher, uh, who conducts yeah. her own examination uh, on these samples. And I and I recognized her uh, from various ABFD conferences, forensic document. Com- I don't personally know her. I recognize her. Okay. I didn't know the other guy. Sure. Right, right. So she concludes that the initial examination was flawed from the start, and there's not enough sample from the wedding license, that Wachschel had picked out certain letters from a conclusion and just didn't look at enough samples of all the letters to be able to reach that level of conclusion. And and that resonated with, again, my experience with document examiners and, you know, and Again, all the presentations I've seen on documents over the years, as we were discussing earlier, that that opinion really resonated. But it still, you know, they save kind of the the you know, the big one for last. There's still the DNA, right? And yeah, right. Despite all these other things, none of the other things are like, no, it's not him. All the other things are just, you know, we can't really tell either way. But DNA would still be a a huge factor here. Oh, man, this this part just blew me away, though. So, primetime on ABC is, you know, uh, they're making all the graphics, they're putting together the show, and they what they show on the screen looks like kind of a, an excerpt from a, a lab report with, you know, kind of a table with the, you know, alleles listed, and then this sample... And then the numbers in each of those boxes, you know, it looks like... Yeah, it looks like a legit uh, allele table with uh, the markers in it. So, turns out, they had found out from San Francisco police that there were five you know, alleles that had results, but were never told what the numbers were for, for the, you know, from those results. They were never shown any of those documents. But to kind of kind of get the point across as to 
for the show, they made that document. They filled it in with just made up numbers and then blurred it all out to air in the show. Right. They created their own table and then blurred it out to make it look as if it was the the original report or the original data and gave it this kind of reenactment, you know, graphic right. to it. Right. Right. Very much like a reenactment kind of thing. And even then, only one of the five <laughs> sets of numbers did they interpret correctly when they did the their own kind of uh, deblurring, you know, guesses uh, from that. Which makes me kind of wonder, like, you know, if they knew what the answers should have been to match his dad. I, I don't know. That, that's just you know, kind of guessing. But but to to then provide numbers to this this DNA lab, which would match up to that level. I don't know. It seems like a crazy coincidence if it was just if they really were just guessing or you know trying to 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 guess based on what was blurred. But I don't know. Right. So the, again, this is all presented to to this guy you know, Gary, and he's just so sticking with his man. Th- this is kind of it starts to get a little uncomfortable because he kind of finally gets clued into oh these guys aren't on my side. They're not telling my story. They're debunking my story. He gets very yep. flustered. He goes and grabs his glasses and starts looking through paperwork. And he then comes back and said, doesn't matter. They made it up. So what they made up doesn't matter. I talked to this guy, Detective Perucci with San Francisco PD. He says they couldn't exclude my dad. So that must mean that all five match. And if all five match, the numbers are still good. It's still 998 uh, or yeah, ninety nine point eight percent. Right. Then it cuts to Susan Mustafa. Right, separate set of interviews. They're revealing all this stuff to her. She also you know, gets real emotional, gets confused as to you know all of this stuff being kind of debunked in front of her. And at that point, cuts to a couple months later, where they invite Susan out to San Francisco to talk to direct Detective Perucci. Man, just. The kind of the dawning realization on her face through this whole part was was just was really fascinating to watch. But she talks to the detective who said, you know, I never said these things that Gary says that I said, never said that that, you know, his dad was the, the Zodiac, that that these results were going to be great for his book, you know, all this other stuff. What I did say is that his father couldn't be excluded as being the Zodiac because we don't know if the DNA on these envelopes actually came from the Zodiac or not. And she just kind of, you know, her, her kind of face just kind of falls. I mean, she's a true crime writer and she kind of realizes I've written this book. That's that isn't as based in truth as I thought it was. Right. Right. You're going to go through a couple other things here, right? Right. So uh, one of the things I kind of skipped over earlier is this arrest record that they used in the book that showed that uh, Earl Van Best Jr. went to a Tascadero mental hospital or state, and you may have gone through different severe 1960s psychological treatments, electrical shocks, stuff like that. And that's on the arrest record, the criminal history that's shown in the book, but it's not in the criminal history that the state actually has. So the producers kind of get right. copies of both and compare the both. And, you know, Susan is just like dumbfounded that there is this discrepancy. 
And so the reason why a Tascadero is important is first, you know, Susan says that she kind of bases some of the story that she told that, you know, he is capable of these things because he, he got this psychological treatment slash torture kind of stuff. Uh, but also the, the big suspect before this book came out for decades, really, and even in the movie Zodiac was this guy named Arthur Lee Allen. And Arthur Lee Allen insisted to the day he died that he wasn't the Zodiac, but there's a whole lots of other set of, of um, evidence that suggests that he might be. But at one point, evidently, he said that he does know who the Zodiac was, and it was this crazy guy that he met in a Tascadero. So then in the book, they put forward that C. Earl Van Vest, Van Vest Jr. was in a Tascadero. That kind of links this whole story together. But right. from the actual police record, it really shows that he wasn't there, and that kind of takes away this whole other portion of of the story and another portion of the evidence from the book. And it really it seems like it causes Mustafa to start questioning even more about other bits of information that you know she had been given by Gary throughout the whole process. Yeah, and it it now begins to suggest that Gary Stewart may not have been the most reliable source of information because he's now beginning to I don't want to say alter, but what he what he is putting in the book is not exactly a, a copy of the original record. It it has new information, the the Atascadero information that fits more with his theory that's been added to this document that's not there. So these little kind of changes are important to making it all seem like it fits, but this is what the producers are, are uncovering. Right. In an interview with Gary, uh, he says that he added that there because he was told by Lieutenant Hennessy from San Francisco PD that your father was in the Tascadero. So when he saw this here, he put that on there because he was told that, allegedly, from a detective. It, what really is apparent to me is that in Susan's mind – all sorts of questions start coming up. Yes, yes, yes. So one thing then right towards the end, at least Susan seems to say that she never saw these letters. Um, and there were a series of letters from Earl's next family. So after everything with Judy had ended and he got out of prison, he married a lady named Edith who eventually got fed up with him and took their their next kid uh, and left and went back to where she was originally from in Austria. Earl, at some point, follows her out there to Europe. And from what uh, you know, letters sent back and forth between that side of the family and Gary years later uh, indicate that Earl was likely in Europe in 1970 when when some of this Zodiac stuff was going on. So it's kind of this final suggestion that he wasn't even in the country. Yeah, and this was really for me uh, one of the, the you know the final nails in the coffin because when I heard oh and oh and by the way he may not have even been in the country in this time period which the producers had sort of unearthed his uh, living records and his um, you know um, financial statements and these things and these various addresses and then suddenly I think from a point in like 1969 70 or so there's two years where he, he's 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 in no records whatsoever he's not arrested he's not he doesn't have any uh, payment statements he's got no address listed or you know found anywhere so there's this great gap in his history which seems to coincide with these letters that would suggest he was in Austria. 
or at least in Europe somewhere. Right. So then the, the, the final coda here of, of the whole story takes you know, another look back at, uh, at Gary. And you know, throughout the whole story, you know, he's talked about you know, how this whole journey has affected him, the negative impact it's had on, on his family, his relationship with his mother – you know that just kind of multiple families multiple too. Exactly. He was he yeah, he was divorced. I think four times. At least four times. Yeah, I, yeah. He went through multiple wives that could not stand this obsession that he was just so obsessed with this, and you know not very present. You know in his in his family. I mean, his his you know he's no longer speaking with his mother, and he says he kind of recognizes all of this, but he says he'd also do it all over again. And yeah. the, I think the saddest thing at the end is this quote. He says, I can continue this journey for another 10 years and never, never, never feel any better about me. Yeah. He, you know, he, he talks about this feeling of abandonment that he's had his whole life from being an adopted child. And yes. Even this search for identity yes, that he has. search for identity. Even his mom finding him after 40 years and trying to kind of start this relationship, he's just laser focused on the other parent that uh, that still isn't there. Yeah. And, and still, despite everything that was laid out here, is still insistent that, that his father was the Zodiac Killer. And it basically seems to have become his identity, right? And Yes. Yeah. That's right. But once your identity is fused with this a belief, it's it becomes impossible to disentangle that. It's now forever linked, right? The I think the final shot of the documentary is him getting into his car and driving off, and his license plate says is personalized. It says Van Best. The name, yeah, it's crazy. The name of the father that abandoned him when he was months old in a stairwell and that he believes to be a serial killer is his personalized license plate. Yeah. Just, it's, anyway. It's sad. It's, it's, it is sad. But that was just, right at the end there, I just, just kind of threw up my hands and was just, man, that, that was a great documentary series. Yeah. It, it, you don't see the twist really coming. And I and I, I loved it. I really I, I really loved the turn, you know, in in there. I really I really feel bad for this Susan Mustafa, who's this kind of collateral damage, you know, throughout all of this. And I don't, you know, I don't know. She was receiving a lot of this information directly from him, and she's interviewed. And she, I, I read a few of these interviews. She she was interviewed by a Vulture website. Um, That's a great article. Yeah, true crime. And they ask her some really great stuff. And you know, she talks about, look, I have to own this. I'm a journalist. I'm a researcher. And you know, in the beginning, I was sort of doing my due diligence. But at some point, he just kept giving me this great information, and I'm writing the book. I'm, I begin to effectively trust him and not following up on these things my, myself. And every time I have a question, he has a, you know an answer. He was so laser focused with his research and spending so much of his time and money and emotional investment in this that he was just he seemed you know 
like a Terminator, focused on getting this information, would not stop, will just keep coming and get this info. And she just kind of, you know, admitted that's on me. And, you know, I unfortunately she was worried that it could affect her reputation. At some point in the interview, they asked her, do you think that the producers treated you fairly? And I thought that was a really interesting question. Yeah. And their answer is, Yes, I, I do. I think they were actually very fair given all of this, and I'm thankful that they exposed this. She basically said, I don't want you know this misinformation out there, if, if it is in fact misinformation, and I want, I want the truth out there. And if I'm responsible for disseminating something that's not true, I would want to be called out on that. And she thought that they did it very fairly. Also, she thought they did it in a very cinematic sort of way. Uh, and yeah. I think she appreciated a good story herself as, a, as an author. And it, it was told in, in this great storytelling mechanism. So, yeah, I, I thought that was respectable of her to go, yes. I made some mistakes, I should have done this, should have done that, and that this was a, a, a fair portrayal of how it all came out. Yeah, I think she even said that what she also really appreciated was it didn't just kind of wrap up with that gotcha moment as they laid out all this this evidence that what originally wasn't planned for her to come back and go up to San Francisco to talk to the detective up there. Yeah, right. That you know, she wanted to do that extra bit and kind of a little at least a, a tiny bit of the investigation that she felt she should have done a long time ago but hadn't done to ask some of these questions and you know they arranged to get that set up and she was able to talk to the detective and and that's i think that seemed to help her work through all this as well yeah yeah that's that's probably very fair all right, Glenn. That was that was fun. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I don't, it's always weird talking about things being exciting and fun when it's serial killers. Because I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> these are some horrible stories. But I don't know. It, it's maybe it's just human nature that that we find these kinds of mysteries so fascinating. Or, or maybe it's just being raised on Scooby Doo adventures, uh, right? Know, solving the mystery, <laughs> right, right? And they would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling producers. <laughs> And the dog, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything uh, we need to cover here at the end? I don't think so. I, other than I would highly recommend this. Again, FX and, and Hulu. It, it's a really interesting, fascinating documentary. And, you know, you you really feel for these characters at the end. And, and I thought it was interesting, too, that Susan doesn't really harbor – at least she didn't seem to in the interview. She doesn't really seem to harbor this anger towards Gary for this. I mean in the, in the documentary, she was – pretty upset and rightfully so because it's a very much a gotcha moment but after she had time to think about it and so forth it seemed like she'd come to some peace right. with with this and and even peered may, may have even had some communications with gary over, over you know over this at some point but she seems to have begun to mentally move on from yeah. it yeah I agree. Anyway, if you guys have any comments or impressions as you watch the show that were any different than ours, you know, feel free to please share those with us. Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. And or heck, if if your name fits into one of these uh, Zodiac puzzles <laughs> uh, or you know who the real Zodiac killer is, please let us know. Yes. <laughs> yes. Please do. Well, uh, we'd love to be able to break that case wide open. Uh, but before we close out, let's get to the anagram. 
So, Glenn, you, you've had some time to uh, to work this one out. What? Uh... Yeah, at the top of the hour, you gave me the anagram Snug Emu Fireplug. And there is a fingerprint-related word in there. So I found super glue fuming. There you go. Uh, you're, I bet you're looking like, okay, F. It's got to be finger, finger, P, a print. I started with finger. The... That's exactly what I did. I started with finger <laughs> and then abandoned that pretty quickly. right. right. So, all right, a little bit tougher than last time, and uh, but we'll we'll keep these going. I think this this is going to be way easier on me because I just think of something and put it into a website, and the <laughs> the unscrambling process uh, is 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 tougher, but probably more fun too. Yeah. So uh, don't forget to follow us at Double Loop Podcast. Also, you can go to our website, doublepodcast.com. It's got a little bit of a redesign and it includes all of our social media links. So you can go there to find Facebook, but also our merch store and support us that way as well. Indeed. And Patreon. And Patreon, exactly. Sign up, send us a couple bucks, you know, helps us keep the show going. Yeah, we'd like to hear back from, uh, you know, I recently got another, just in the middle of another conversation. Hey, by the way, love the show, like listening to it. And, uh, you know, thank you to everyone out there that's been listening for, you know, all these years now. We, we really do appreciate uh, you know hearing those kinds of comments. Indeed. Oh, and why don't we mention the Discord thing too? We're still doing the Wednesday happy hour. Yep. There's only uh, you know there's a small group of us, but we've been we've been fairly dedicated to the Wednesdays and the group that seems to rotate in and out. Yeah, yeah. As you know, lockdown gets eased and then and then um, and then put back into place for some parts of the country. Mm. You know, join us for you know virtual happy hour. Look in the show notes for the link. Or you can email us if you can't find it any other way, and we'll send that to you. It's text chat during the week, and then Wednesdays, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern U.S. time. We'll get on to the, the voice chat part of it and, uh, and hang out that way. I'd love to see you guys there and, uh, and tip one back with you. But with that, we will talk to you guys next week. Have a good one. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Stay safe, stay sane, stay healthy.